0: Job chapter 37, Elihu concludes, the storm has come. Chapter 37, verse 1, at this also my heart trembles and leaps from its place. Hear attentively the thunder of his voice and the rumbling that comes from his mouth. He sends it forth under the whole heaven, his lightning to the ends of the earth. After it, a voice roars. He thunders with his majestic voice, and he does not restrain them when his voice is heard. God thunders marvelously with his voice. He does great things which we cannot comprehend. For he says to the snow, Fall on the earth. Likewise to the gentle rain and the heavy rain of his strength, he seals the hand of every man. That all men may know his work. The beasts go into dens and remain in their lairs. From the chambers of the south comes the whirlwind and cold from the scattering winds of the north. By the breath of God, ice is given and the broad waters are frozen. Also with moisture, he saturates the thick clouds. He scatters his bright clouds and they swirl about being turned by his guidance. That they may do whatever he commands them on the face of the earth. We're going to pause there. Elihu's monologue, like I said, began in chapter 32. His speech to Job denounces Job for his claim of innocence and for his friend's failure to answer Job well. He argues that God doesn't make unfair judgments. And in the end, Believes that Job is arrogant in his claims of personal innocence and righteousness, and Elihu believes that God responds with wisdom and fairness and condemns Job for calling into question his fairness. Remember, remember, remember Elihu's way of thinking and all of his friends' way of thinking. Let's put it as simply as possible. They believe that good things happen to good people and bad things happen to bad people. If good things happen to good people and bad things happen to bad people, then there must be something wrong with Job. That's his way of thinking. Elihu concludes his speech with a powerful and even poetic declaration of God's might. And majesty, his faithfulness, and his righteousness. In chapter 34 and 35, Elihu declares that God is just. And in chapters 36 and 37, that God is great. And Elihu may have been wrong about Job. But he was right about God's power. He was right about God's majesty and omnipotence and magnificence. He's right when he says that nature points to God's attributes, God's greatness. In one sense, Elihu's message is that if the God of creation is big enough to create, and if the God of creation is big enough not only to create and care about the creation, then God is big enough to care about you. Because he created you. In the last chapter, Elihu said, Behold, God is great, and we don't really know him. In chapter 36, verse 26, it says, Behold, God is great, and we do not know him, nor can we number the number of his years and be discovered, or or we don't know him like we should know him. Elihu looks at the work of God in nature And then notices again that God is in control of autumn in chapter 36, beginning in verse 27, all the way to chapter 37 in verse 5. God is in control in autumn, and autumn leads to winter, and winter leads to spring, and spring leads to summer. And because God is in control of creation and because God is in control of the seasons, he's also in control of the seasons of your life. The beginning of your life. The middle of your life. The end of your life. And so, he concludes in the chapter with a series of questions. In a very real way... Elihu is a poet and a theologian and a creation scientist. And by that, I mean he looks at climate and he looks at water and he looks at rain and he looks at the things that are happening. He points to the clouds. He points to the lightning. He points to the wind. He points to the rainless skies and he says, can you explain what's going around you? Do you understand the world in which you live? Do you understand the seasons? Do you understand the life forms on the planet. Elihu challenges Job and says, if you can't give answers to even the everyday events in nature, how are you going to be able to stand before God and give an explanation for your life? Elihu warns Job that mere men can't look very long into the burning sun and not get their eyes burnt out. And so he also says, how can you stand before God and hope to escape judgment? He's basically asking the question that you've asked. And that question is, what will I say when I meet God? Some of you will sing a song. You'll go, you know, will I sing hallelujah? Will I be able to say anything at all? You'll, 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 you'll just turn into Caleb and you'll start thinking of songs that you remember singing in church. What will I say to him when I meet him face to face? And some scholars speculate that Elihu's speech is cut short by a very real storm that was fast approaching. The setting in chapter 37 and the beginning of chapter 38, it's as if a storm is coming. And I don't know if you've ever been outside in a great big storm, a tornado, or a hurricane. Tomorrow morning I'm getting ready to fly to Charleston, and I notice that along the Atlantic seaboard there is a giant hurricane. And it's scheduled to land in Charleston the same time I'm landing in Charleston. And you look out. And you see the clouds gathering. You see the lightning and the storm. Imagine we are all outside on Job's trash heap. And there's Job, our friend. There's the three people who have talked to Job. And all of a sudden we feel the splatter on our face. We can feel the rain. It's lightly Touching our face and the rain, and you start to hear the thunder roll. You see lightning off in the distance, and all of a sudden the atmosphere gets filled with electricity. There's a storm coming. There's a storm coming. What Elihu doesn't realize is that God is going to speak to Job out of the storm. Look what it says in verse 1. At this also my heart trembles and leaps from its place. Hear attentively the thunder of his voice and the rumbling that comes from his mouth. It's as if the storm is happening and the thunder has peeled and Eli who takes advantage of the fireworks that are already taking place. It's as if he's saying, Job, did you hear that, that roll of thunder? Well, Listen. The expression, hear attentively. It's an appeal. Not just simply for Job or his friends, but all of the bystanders who have gathered around to hear the speeches that have been made, both the accusations and the defenses. It's an appeal, again, for Job to continue to listen. Elihu considers the shock and awe and the amazing and mighty majesty and power of God in verse 3 it says he sends it forth under the whole heaven his lightning to the ends of the earth if you've ever been in a thunderstorm and you watch the sky light up from the very left to the very right it just fills up the heavens he sends it forth under the whole heaven after it a voice roars now some of you have seen lightning you see the lightning flash and what can you expect at any moment The thunder. Again, if you ever went to elementary school, you can see the lightning and then you begin to count. 1,001, 1,002, 1,003. And you get a sense of the distance between the lightning and the speed of sound. In verse 4 it says, After a voice roars. He thunders with his majestic voice and he does not restrain them when his voice is heard. Elihu believes that God speaks. And he believes that he speaks and his voice is unmistakable. As a matter of fact, in verse 4, where it says, After it, a voice roars. The word for roar is actually the same word that's used in the Hebrew language to describe the roaring of a lion. If you've ever been to a zoo or if you've ever been to Africa or if you've ever been close to a lion and you hear a lion let go of a fairly impressive roar, it's hard to ignore it. You can't just sit there and go, yeah, lion's roaring, who cares? You have the safety of the fence between you and the lion, but can you imagine if the fence is gone and all of a sudden the roar, you see a lion and it can see you and all of a sudden it roars. I, got, I, I can tell you right now the hairs will stand. If you have hairs on your arm, it, they'll stand straight up. God thunders marvelously with his voice. He does great things which we cannot comprehend. Again, it's almost like... The song that we sing, I hear the rolling thunder. And we sing, My God, how great thou art. The sky darkens, the cloud gather, the lightning flashes, the thunder roars. The trash heap now becomes an outpouring of rain as it begins to soak up the rain. And here in the ancient world, the weather generates awe and wonder. And Elihu wants to point out that the Lord is the Lord God, that He's the creator of, of heaven and earth, and He allows the flash and the thunder to illustrate His sermon. The rumble and the roar, verse 4. The snow in verse 6. The gentle rain in verse 6. The heavy rain in verse 6. The whirlwind in verse 9. The cold wind in verse 9. The ice in verse 10. The thick cloud in verse 11. The bright cloud in verse 11. He believes, Elihu believes, that God controls the weather. That God speaks in the storm. He believes that the Lord is the one who's established the laws of nature, and so do I. If you've ever read the Bible in its context or in its entirety, you have the reoccurring theme in the beginning. God created the heavens and the earth. There's the reoccurring testimony that everything that we see, God has established. He made the earth and the skies, the sun and the stars. He makes the seasons and the cycles, the cloud formation and the rain. And in Job's day, the clouds and the presence of rain was a bit of a mystery. Imagine that you're growing up in a world and there is no nine news. There is no weather channel. There, you've never heard a forecast. You've never went to school and you don't understand about hydrology or precipitation. You've studied evaporation and condensation and precipitation and the need for electricity in order to create the world in which we live. But remember, they don't know about any of those things. To Elihu, lightning is a weapon. To Elihu, the thunder is the voice of God. And the autumn rain gives way to the winter ice and snow. And so God is in control of the winter storm. Look at verse 6. For he says to the snow, fall on the earth. Likewise to the gentle rain and the heavy rain of his strength. So he's saying... God isn't just in control of this season, but he's in control of the next season and the season after that. And that becomes something important Even for you, right at this very moment. You understand that God is in control of your life at the beginning. And God is in control of your life now. And as the chapter unfolds, God continues to be in control of your life. God speaks and the snow falls. But think about all that the Bible says. God speaks. In the beginning, God created the, the heavens and the earth. The Bible says, in the beginning was the Word. And the Word was with God. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. The Bible says that when God speaks... Reality becomes more real. That God takes nothing and he makes it something just by his speech. The light shines. The universe exists. The earth is established. Life begins. There's the sun, the moon, the stars, the seasons. And then he says in verse 7, he seals the hand of every man that all men may know his work. You may not understand the connection between verse 6 and verse 7. The autumn storm gives way to the winter storm. What happens when the winter storm comes? All of a sudden, the snow starts falling. If you've ever been in Colorado, and six inches of snow become 12 inches of snow, becomes two feet of snow, become three feet of snow. Were, were some of you here in the 90s when we had seven feet of snow and the roads closed, the businesses shut down, Hospitals couldn't get patients. Everything comes to a standstill. That's part of what he's saying. God uses winter storms. And and when God brings the storm, when God brings the storm, human effort ceases. Human work comes to a standstill. The Lord can make human labor impossible. He seals the hand of every man. That means that sometimes when the Lord decides to do whatever it is that the Lord decides to do, you don't get to be in charge. And I hate the fact that I'm preaching this message because I have this awful feeling that I'm going to be sitting for three hours in Chicago tomorrow. (laughs) Because the storm is there. And I don't get to be in charge. I don't get to come and go as I please. The storm comes, the weather comes, and I don't get to be in charge. And so here's what Elihu says. What happens when you don't have anywhere to go and nothing to do? Elihu says, have you ever sat by a window when it was raining or when it was snowing or when the weather made it impossible for you to go outside and you began to just simply consider the greatness of God and the world that he made and the creation as the the object of his creative power? At that point, people reflect on God's work. A storm can paralyze a city, it can close an airport, it can restrict travel, it can make business stop. And so he says, not only do humans have to bend to the weather, in verse 8, the beasts go into dens and remain in their lairs. All of those little gophers and chipmunks and all the little critters Scatter to the place where they're going to be safe. Animals retreat to their winter home. Verse 9. From the chamber of the south comes the whirlwind. And cold from the scattering winds of the north. Elihu imagines a place where God keeps the wind. Imagine you're four or five years old. And all of a sudden the wind starts blowing and howling. Do you remember when you were a kid? Did you ever ask the question, where's this coming from? Where does the wind come? Begin. How does wind even work? Elihu imagines that God keeps a place and that he generates a place where the wind blows and then it howls in verse 10. By the breath of God, ice is given and the broad waters are frozen. In Elihu's way of thinking, he's personifying this fact. He envisions a God just like you've seen on TV where you see... A supernatural being blows and his very breath becomes the source of of snow. Water freezes. In in poetic language, Elihu envisions God blowing on the surface of the water. He envisions God blowing on the surface of the water and ice is formed. Imagine that you were sitting there and you're trying to figure out how are the polar ice caps formed? Why is it that Iceland is mostly green and Greenland is mostly ice? What Weather Channel calls climatology and meteorology, Elihu calls the miracle work of Almighty God. James Taylor in the 60s saying, Winter, spring, summer, autumn. You know how it goes. All you have to do is call. So Elihu, being the product of the 60s like he is, he's reminiscing. He sees this unfolding vision of the seasons as an opportunity to glorify God. Isaac Watts was no James Taylor, but he did write, I sing the goodness of the Lord. That filled the earth with food. He formed the creatures with his word. And then pronounced them good. There's not a plant or flower below. That makes thy glories known. And clouds arise and tempests blow. By order of thy throne. There is a God. Who orders. And orchestrates. The universe and the earth. And your life. And he's in control of the spring storm. Autumn becomes winter. Winter becomes spring. Look at verse 11. Also with moisture. He saturates the thick clouds. He scatters his bright clouds. Again, Elihu is speaking of the fact that. In evaporation and then precipitation, the clouds form and then they're filled with moisture. And it's as if those thick clouds begin to break. He scatters the bright clouds. The bright clouds may be a reference to those glimpses of lightning. Have you ever looked into a storm and you see a gigantic cloud cover and then all of a sudden something something bright flashes right in the midst of the cloud? I suspect that that's what Elihu's talking about. He's talking about the flashes of light in the midst of the cloud. In verse 12 he says, and they swirl about being turned by his guidance. That they may do whatever he commands them over the face of the whole earth. And that's an interesting expression in the Hebrew language. It says, and they swirl about being turned. Turned by his guidance. That word guidance in the Hebrew language. It's a nautical term. It's a term. And, and the Hebrews weren't very good at ocean going kinds of stuff. They, But it, it is a borrowed word and a nautical term. It means steerings. Or rope pullings. It's used in Proverbs chapter 1 verse 5. But the picture is that there's this wise God steering. Pulling, charting the course of the clouds. The picture is God orchestrating the movements and the expressions. And his guidance, like I said, is the idea that he is literally and specifically orchestrating. All of the cycles. In verse 13 he causes it to come. Whether for correction or for his land or for mercy. And this is really interesting too. Elihu believes that God creates the weather. And controls the weather. And he does it, look what it says, for correction. In what sense? When something has gone off course. It becomes almost a kind of discipline. But look what else it says. Or for his land. Elihu is using terms of reward and punishment. But it's interesting to me because again, that expression, his land. And when I looked at that, remember... Job is probably written during the time of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. The patriarchs are in the land, but the land itself hasn't really been established. It could very well be that the Lord is using the weather for correction. And here I think correction means teaching or instruction And then it says, for correction and for his land. And I think that the way that the language is constructed, it seems to me that it means the land that he loves, the land that he cares about. And the reason why I think that, because again, it's in the context of mercy, he causes it to come, the storm. Whether for correction, I think that means instruction, or for his land, or for mercy. In what sense? Mercy is something that you give to someone who doesn't deserve it. Mercy is something that you give to someone that reflects a covenant, or an agreement, or a relationship. And so there seems to be even a hint in Elihu's speech that there might be some instruction or correction in the sense that a test might be given. But it could very well be that in Elihu's way of thinking, Elihu is thinking that God is testing Job. Remember what we've already learned. Does Elihu know about the first two chapters of Job? Does he know about this confrontation between God and Satan? The answer is no. But again, we're given a hint that maybe a test is involved. And once again, we restate the possibilities or the reasons that Elihu has offered for Job's suffering. Maybe it's to correct those who have gone astray. Maybe it's to rescue those whom God loves. Maybe it's to test the love and loyalty of someone who's entered into a covenant relationship and has somehow turned back. Made a promise to God, but then failed to honor the promise. Does offering the explanation provide an explanation? Not really. Remember, Elihu keeps offering these explanations. Job, you're suffering. Yeah. This might be the reason. Or that might be the reason. Or this might be the reason. Or that might be the reason. When you're hurt, when you're afraid, when you're in trouble, do you want to know why? I think most people do. I think most people do. But does an explanation make the pain go away? Or the fear go away? Or the loss? Does it mean that the loss gets to return? Not really. And so there's a final appeal that's made in Elihu's speech. From verse 14 to verse 24. Look what it says. In verse 14, listen to this, O Job, stand still and consider this, or stand still and consider the wondrous works of God. Do you not know when God dispatches them and causes the light of his cloud to shine? Do you not know how the clouds are balanced? Those wondrous works of him who is Perfect in knowledge. Why are your garments hot when he quiets the earth by the south wind? With him have you spread out the skies, strong as a cast metal mirror. Elihu invites Job to consider three questions. Let's see if we can put those questions in a way that makes sense to us. Number one, in verse 15. Job Do you know why and how God guides the clouds? Job, do you know what causes lightning to flash in the sky in verse 15? Job, do you know how God hangs the clouds in midair? Do you understand how God creates a cloud and then fixes it in the sky and then allows it to work? Do you have perfect or complete knowledge like God in verse 16? Job, can you spread out the skies on a hot day when the humidity is so profound that your clothes become soaked? Remember in verse 17 and 18, the picture, I don't know if you've ever been in some place where it's really humid, like where I was born in New Orleans, Louisiana, or you've been somewhere in the south, and the, the sky is clear and the sun is hot, and you walk outside and there's not a cloud in the sky, and all of a sudden you're soaked. Your, your shirt or whatever it is that you're wearing is covered in moisture that if you took your shirt off and you squeezed it, you could squeeze out the water. He says, do you understand how that works? Job, can you spread out the skies on a hot day when the humidity is so profound that your clothes are soaked and yet cause the skies to reflect the heat like a mirror? In verse 14, listen to this, O Job, stand still and consider the wondrous works of God. In verse 14, in the end, when he says, listen to this, O Job, Stand still and consider the wondrous works of God. What's interesting about verse 14 is when we come to the end of the chapter, in chapter 38, 39, 40, 41, and 42, in the end, this is exactly what Job would do. In the end, after God gives his speech, Job will just simply stand still and take it in. It remains good advice for believers in every generation. The Moody Bible commentary says, quote, All believers need to be reminded that they are the work of the great power of God, who in his grace has chosen to bestow his love and favor on them. I like that because, again, I think it captures the meaning of the text, where sometimes the best thing that you can do in order to appreciate what's going on is just to take a personal time out And say, Lord, you're awesome. You're great. You're wonderful. It's amazing what you can do. In the book of evolution, in light of scripture, science, and sense, I ran across a story. It actually made me think of Scott Kerr. He's going to see why in just a moment. It was a story about eels. Eels are among the most mysterious animals on earth. The prevailing scientific opinion is that all American and European eels lay their eggs under a mass of seaweed 1,500 feet in the Sargozo Sea. Do you know where the Sargozo Sea is? It's just off the Atlantic coast. If you go the mid-coast of the eastern seaboard of the United States from about where New York is all the way down to the Carolinas, and you proceed east into the ocean, it's that northern part of the North Atlantic, and it's called the Sargozo Sea. And it's called Sargozo. It's from a Portuguese word. Sargozo was a word that Portuguese explorers used to describe the seaweed that would form there just east of the continental United States. The eels, they lay pinhead-sized eggs They release transparent, ribbon-like creatures with no eyes, no mouths. Billions of these tiny, blind creatures are programmed to travel 1,000 to 3,000 miles across the ocean. They get into the Gulf Stream. They're carried to Europe. They're carried to America. Traveling further north, they gradually lose their transparency. Eyes and mouths appear. The eels that are not eaten slowly develop hearts and stomachs. Next, they swim up rivers, and they eat everything in sight, whether it's dead or alive. They gradually turn yellow, and then they grow up to three feet long. For the first five to eight years, eels are sexless, after which they develop both male and female organs. Once mature, their noses become pointy. They start back downstream, and their skin turns silvery. Apparently, they never eat again. Do you know how we know that? Because no silver eel has ever been found that has food in its stomach, ever. The eels swim thousands of miles to their birthplace in the Sargasso Sea. At that time, the eels either become male or female. Because one of the sex organs shrivels up, and the other sex organ manifests itself. Once they reproduce, they die. It's beyond comprehension to think. All of this happened through random processes directed by mutational processes. God designed this complex sequence allowing eels to thrive and survive in the fallen world. You know why I thought about you? Because I'll never eat eel the same ever again. You go to sushi, you you eat this eel and you go. Think about all that this eel had to go through in order to wind up on a bed of rice with a little bit of wasabi and soy sauce. I'll never eat eel the same ever again. In verse 15 it says, Do you know when God dispatches them and causes the light of His cloud to shine? Verse 16, do you know how the clouds are balanced? Those wondrous works of him who is perfect in knowledge. Why are your garments hot when he quiets the earth by the south wind? With him have you spread out the skies strong as a cast metal mirror. In the ancient world, people would take bronze. And then they would polish it and polish it and polish it. Until you could actually see your own reflection in it. But it was hard. Almost invincible. But look again. Elihu, do you know? Look in verse 15. When? Look at verse 16. How? Look at verse 17. Why? Look at verse 18. Who? With him. Look again in verse 18. With him have you spread out the skies. So Elihu is asking the scientific questions. When? How? Why? Who? All of this is very interesting to me. Elihu's a great teacher. He's even a good speaker and a wonderful scientist. When Elihu asks these questions, what's the response going to be? I don't know. I don't know. I don't know. I don't know. Now, what's interesting to me, again, in the age of scientific enlightenment, there are many things that we do understand. In the age of scientific enlightenment, our meteorology friends and our climatology friends and our oceanographer friends and all of our other friends might be willing to say, Hey, I know the answers to Elihu's questions. In the age of scientific enlightenment, we might say, there's so much that we've learned and that we've come to understand. And the answer, of course, is we have learned a whole lot. And we do understand a whole lot more. But do we know everything? About everything? Are there mysteries that still remain? Questions that don't seem to have answers. In he says in verse 19, teach us what we should say to him. For we can prepare nothing because of the darkness. There's a little bit of a role reversal. Job is invited to instruct Elihu. He's basically saying, teach us what we should say to him. Hey, Job, if you know exactly what you're going to say to God when you get there, instruct us. For we can prepare nothing because of the darkness. What does that mean? It means given the mental, emotional, physical, psychological, theological, and spiritual limitations that we have. We don't, know, we don't have a clue of what to say. You know what's interesting to me is that in the New Testament, the Bible says, we used to be in darkness, but now we're in light. We used to occupy a place of death, but now we occupy a place of life. After we're done with Job, we're going to be teaching in the book of Hebrews, and the opening verse of the opening chapter of Hebrews is that God, who in different times, in different ways, in the past, has spoken through the prophets, has in these last days spoken to us by his own dear son. The Bible says that The law came by Moses, but grace and truth came by Jesus Christ. The New Testament seems to indicate that what used to be dark is now light, and what used to be not known is now known. That God has something important to say, and he said it in the person of Jesus. When it says, teach us what we should say to him, for we can prepare Nothing. Again, the word "prepare" is an interesting word in the Hebrew language because, again, it's it's a legal term. It's a term that is used in the court of law. It's a description of the preparation of a case or a legal brief. It's the idea that you are an advocate and you're preparing an argument that you are going to present in order to persuade a person to render a decision that is going to result in either guilt or innocence. And the reason why that becomes important for you is Because I think that we all rehearse that kind of a speech as we imagine ourselves before God and the Lord says the simple statement, well, tell me a little bit about your life and yourself. Tell me about who you are. Explain to me about your life. And we know that God already knows the story. We know that he's been privy to every moment of every day. We understand that a fair God, a just God, a gracious God, and a righteous God. If he makes the decision based on the purity of his character. That he is going to have to deal with the problem of our sin. If it's never been dealt with before. And that's the beauty of the gospel. Our simple defense as Christians Is Jesus. Jesus is my defense. Jesus is the explanation that I offer. Because the Bible teaches that there is forgiveness in Jesus. And there is hope in Jesus. And there is exoneration in Jesus. Because the Bible says that his sacrifice takes place and, and takes care of the problem of my sin. In verse 20, Elihu says, Should he be told that I wish to speak? It's his way of saying, Should God be told that I wish to speak? We have an idiomatic expression in our culture and society. If anyone has ever said to you, I can't wait to get to heaven so I can tell God what I think, that's what this means. It's the foolishness of any person who thinks that they're going to show up in heaven and go, I'm going to give you a little piece of my mind, and the Lord's going to say, it's a piece that you can't afford to give up at this point. <laughs> if a man were to speak, surely he would be swallowed up. That's what Elihu is saying. Imagine a person had the temerity, a human being had the temerity to say, God, I am now going to instruct you on justice, on fairness, on equity, on righteousness. Which human being could presume to instruct God? In verse 21 it says, Even now men cannot look at the light when it is bright in the skies. You know what that means. If you were ever a little kid and someone foolishly said to you, Stare into the sun as long as you can. How long did that little game last? He says, even now men can't look into the light when it's bright in the skies, when the wind has passed and cleared them. If you can't look into the sun without having your eyes burned, how in the world will you be able to look at God and not be consumed? In verse 22 it says, He comes from the north as a golden splendor. With God is awesome majesty. Pause for just a moment. Remember how we opened up? We're in the trash heap with Job. We've heard the rolling thunder. We've seen the lightning. The gentle rain is starting to fall. And now a torrential rain is starting to fall. Has the storm passed? Has the sky cleared? Elihu talks about... The clouds begin to part. The clouds evaporate and disappear. The sun reappears. The day is clear and the day is bright and the day is calm. In in verse 22, the Lord comes from the north. He appears in his awesome splendor or golden splendor. By the way, in ancient times it was believed that God... Dwelt in the northern places. Now think about this for just a moment. Because we live on the Front Range of Colorado, we know that when we're looking at the Rocky Mountains, which way are we looking? West. If we turn our backs on the Rockies, which way are we looking? East. If you're looking at the Rocky Mountains, And you think about your right hand, you know that that's going to be north. And your left hand is going to be south. In the ancient world, the peoples imagined that you would travel and travel and travel as far as you could to the north. In Isaiah chapter 14, verse 13, it says, For you have said in your heart, this is the king of Tyre, or Lucifer, In this particular instance, who is really the one occupying the king of Tyre's heart. For you have said in your heart, I will ascend into heaven. I will exalt my throne above the stars of God. I will also sit on the mount of the congregation on the farthest sides of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will be like the Most High. It's an idiomatic, poetic way of saying if you begin in a direction and and you're, you're going to exhaust that direction and you finally come to the end of that direction, that's where you're going to find God. In verse 23 it says, As for the Almighty, we cannot find Him. Because no matter how far you go north, You go through Canada, and you go to the Arctic Circle, and then you're on top of the world. And by the way, if you're at the perfect place of north, at the North Pole, is that where you find God? No. And where do you go from there? If you continue to go north, you go up into the sky, into the atmosphere, and then you go into our solar system, And then you continue to go due north to the Orion Nebulae. And you continue to travel and you continue to travel. And if you come to the outskirts of our physical universe, will you find God? Because God is the creator of heavens and earth. He doesn't simply live inside of this universe, but he occupies the place of majesty. In verse 23, it says, as for the Almighty, we cannot find him. He is excellent in power, in judgment and abundant justice. He does not oppress. This is Elihu's way of saying, the Almighty is beyond our reach. He's exalted in power. When we come to the end of our reasoning, if we come to the end, end of our physical resources and our mental resources and our financial resources and our intellectual resources, through any of and all of those resources, can we find God? The answer is no. And so, Elihu, I think, rightly says, the Almighty is beyond our reach and exalted in power. The reason why I think this is kind of interesting is because I think for the philosophical naturalist and the scientist they think that if they can answer the questions of the physical reality in which we live, it will provide an explanation of who we are and why we're here. But science has limits. Science can do a lot. It can tell us a lot. And it can provide for us a lot but one thing that science can never do is evaluate the supernatural you know when you come to verse 24 it says therefore men fear him he shows no partiality to any who are wise of heart the the verse is difficult to translate Francis Anderson translates the second line by taking the negative as an assertion. So instead of saying, therefore men fear him, he shows no partiality to any who are wise of of heart. He takes the assertion as a negation. Surely all those who are wise of heart will fear him. And I think that that might be actually what the text is saying. The idea being... If you are wise of heart, if you come to that place in your life where you you say, I don't know everything about everything, and the right response for me should be, I am going to stand in reverential awe as I begin to consider the glory, the power, and the majesty of God. In the the book called The Genesis Record... It argues that human beings are made in the image of God. And because we're image bearers, we have unique properties that animals don't have. We have emotion. We have reason. And some people might argue with me, well, I know animals and they have emotion. And I guess I'm willing to concede that it looks like animals have emotion. But I'm going to suggest to you that they can't evaluate their emotional state. That a dog can't come to you and say, I'm really depressed and let's talk about it. (laughs) I'm willing to concede that an animal might be depressed but is unable to talk about it. Human beings experience creativity and moral consciousness and the appreciation of beauty, the, the ability to think abstractly. And some moral psychologists argue that God is a fiction, a fabrication an invention to explain the holes, the darkness, and the fears inside of us. And I was, for a very long period in my life before I became a Christian, very open to that sentiment. I thought all religion was foolishness. But something happened to change my mind. I couldn't make the historical circumstances of the life of Jesus and the speech of Jesus and the miracles of Jesus and the death of Jesus and the resurrection of Jesus go away. You see, if I could be convinced that someone made up the life of Jesus and the words of Jesus and the death of Jesus... And the resurrection of Jesus, I would quit my job and I would never speak from this pulpit ever again. It's been 40 years since I came to believe that Jesus Christ is the Lord. In the first year that I was a Christian, and the fifth year that I was a Christian, and the tenth year that I was a Christian, and the fifteenth year that I was a Christian, and the twentieth year that I was a Christian, and the thirtieth year that I was a Christian, and the fortieth year of being a Christian. with the onslaught of all of the arguments, criticisms, speeches, evaluations, none of them have persuaded me. That Jesus is anything other than what the New Testament says he is. The living Lord of heaven. There's something interesting in Elihu's speech. He throws down the gauntlet to Job. He's basically saying, Job, if you don't understand the everyday processes that make up our universe, how in the world are you going to speak to God? In the documentary, Expelled, Richard Dawkins is asked the question by Ben Stein. Imagine all of your philosophical naturalism and atheism. You discover that it's not true. You're standing before God. And remember, he had already asked him the question, how did life begin on the planet? And Dawkins said, I don't know. He speculated that some sort of chemical may have combined on the surface of a crystal to create the mechanism that might have created life. But in in frustration and disgust, he finally conceded that the planet was probably conceded by aliens from another star system. He didn't have a good explanation of how life began on the planet. But however life began, it certainly wasn't the way that the Bible described. And so when asked the question, you stand before God, you give an answer. What are you going to say? And Dawkins said, why didn't you give me more evidence? Yeah, that's the right laugh. You should laugh at that. 300 prophecies aren't sufficient. That you will be the son of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, 300 prophecies of the place where you will be born and, and the things that you'll say and the manner in which you will die and the reality that you'll come back to life. How much evidence are you willing to finally concede is, in fact, evidence? Elihu spoke with self-assurance, he spoke with confidence, He even spoke with a little bravado. He offered rich insights into the nature and the character and the condition of human beings. But his own words condemn him. Because he lacks the one thing that you have. A special revelation. The first two chapters of the book. That a real God has had a real conversation with a real Satan. And that there is something extraordinary and supernatural taking place. The Bible Knowledge Commentary offers this insight. He says, quote, Job said nothing. Job said nothing after Elihu's speeches. Possibly because he saw some truth in what Elihu was saying. According to this youthful informant, that's Elihu, God, justice should not be questioned or his sovereignty challenged because his ways are beyond human understanding. According to Elihu, calamities can serve to remove pride, protect people from more grace difficulties. God then is to be worshipped, not criticized. He's to be extolled, not examined. Elihu fittingly prepared the way for God to speak. He did so a, by defending God. B, by sensitizing Job to his need for humility. C, by describing God's wonders and natural revelation, which God elaborate, will elaborate on. D, by probing Job with thought-provoking questions. And then he gives the list of the questions. A tactic that God continues in chapters 38 to the end of the, of the book. And E, by targeting Job's basic problem. Justifying himself and condemning God, which God will later mention in chapter 40, verse 8. Would you indeed know my judgment? Would you condemn me that you might be justified? We'll have a whole lot to say about that passage when we get there. But Elihu is correct. In at least this sense, those who fear him will find him. If you really, really want to know God, you will. And if you really, really don't, you won't. If you really, really, really want to know God, then you'll embrace the message that God has spoken In the world in which we live. And in the Savior which he's provided. When I come back to this pulpit on Wednesday. God's going to speak. I can't wait. Let's pray. Heavenly Father. Lord we pray that you would. Prepare our hearts. Lord we're so grateful that we actually don't have to wait two weeks. The reality is. You've spoken in so many different ways and under so many different circumstances in creation and in Christ. And that the words of Jesus still ring true. Come to me. Believe in me. Trust me. Heavenly Father, I pray that by your Holy Spirit you would draw people to yourself. Lord, I pray that they would answer the invitation that Jesus extends to anyone who will trust him with their life and allow his sacrifice and his subsequent resurrection to tell the most amazing story that's ever been told, that a real God loves us, that a real Jesus died for us. And that a real gospel changes people, forgives people, restores people, and reconciles people to yourself. Lord, we pray that you'd prepare our hearts now as we have communion. In Jesus' name, amen. Just wanna ask you, just.